Welcome to Ecclesia Hattiesburg this week. Uh, we are down to our last couple of weeks of meeting online, and we are excited to see you in person in March. Uh, for any of you who may be just kind of tuning in, uh, we are a non-denominational community that uh, meets, we're in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and uh, spend most of our time and energy and money and resources uh, investing in this community and trying to uh, bring about um, a better kingdom uh, into this world. And so, uh, if you don't have a community you're connected to, know you're welcome to be a part of ours, no matter where you're coming from, no matter uh, what you've done or haven't done, or uh, how you might personally feel about yourself or your own spirituality, um, or whatever the case may be, um, you're welcome in our community. And uh, we believe that God loves you as you are, and we believe that God loves us too much to leave us as we are. So um, we hope that you will join us uh, in person starting in March. Uh, it'll, we'll meet at five o'clock at Parkway Heights Methodist Church, be masked up, have, you know, social distancing, do all the things that we need to do to keep safe as we try and make it through, hopefully the last little leg of this pandemic. Uh, but we will be meeting in person. We're excited about doing that and excited about hopefully seeing you there. Um, uh, we're gonna have uh, Sharon jump on in here in a minute again, as we have been doing in February. Uh, if you've been watching, you know that we've been keeping a special uh, ear and eye open uh, to the history of the Black Church uh, during uh, Black History Month, uh, trying to hear from and learn from their witness and their testimony. And so um, we're going to continue to do that this week. Um, and uh, this week, Sharon uh, has been giving us these kind of moments and people uh, from history that we should know about uh, and giving us a little introduction and hopefully uh, encouraging you to go and learn a little more yourself. And this week, uh, she'll be talking about Mississippi's own uh, Medgar Evers, which I'm excited about. So um, hope you'll stick with us. 
Uh, keep watching. Sharon's coming up to talk a little bit about that, and then I'll come back on and we'll have a short reflection on what, what I believe is one of the chief reasons we need to be uh, making sure that we listen to the testimony of our uh, of the Black churches, especially in America. So, um, all right, uh, let Sharon take it away, and then I'll see you again in a few minutes. Hi everyone, Sharon here, and I'm excited to talk to you about the next person that we're gonna honor in our Moment in Black History series. The person that we're gonna talk about today is Medgar Evers. Medgar Evers was born in 1925 in Decatur, Mississippi. He joined the U.S. Army when he was 17 to go and fight in World War II. It was during his time in World War II that he started to question the foundation of segregation in Jim Crow, Mississippi. Because um, in the war, he was fighting with soldiers who were black, who were white from different places in the world, and they had to work together to achieve a goal, but that was not the system here in Mississippi. After he um, returned from the war, he went to Alcorn College, known as Alcorn State University now, under the GI Bill, and that's where he met his fabulous wife, Merle Evers. After college, he took a job selling insurance in the Mississippi Delta. And this was a huge turning point for Medgar Evers because one, he realized that the people that he was trying to sell the insurance to really didn't have the money, couldn't afford to buy the insurance he was trying to sell. But he also had a firsthand look at the life and the conditions of sharecroppers in the Delta, people like Fannie Lou Hamer. And he felt compelled. He knew he had to be a part of changing the system to improve the quality of life for all Mississippians. So it was that conviction that led him to become the first field secretary for the NAACP in the state of Mississippi. The NAACP, that's the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. We always say NAACP, so sometimes it's like, what do those words mean? Anyway, um, in three years, he doubled the membership so that it was over 15,000 people in the organization in Mississippi. Please don't miss that important fact. The fact that he is one stepping up to be a leader with NAACP is huge. That was a big risk. And also that he was recruiting other people to the organization, again, a huge risk. Okay, working with the NAACP, he had to investigate crime. One of the crimes he had to investigate was the murder of Emmett Till. Now, there's a whole story with that. What I just want to point out is that Megar Evers worked the case, recruited people to try to tell the truth and get on the stand. And he did convince Emmett Till's uncle Mo to point out in the courtroom who came to his house and took Emmett Till. And what's important about that is after Emmett Till's uncle left the stand. It was it was Medgar Evers and a man named Amzie Moore who took them off the stand and put them on a train to um, Chicago because they knew there was such a huge threat to their life. So I want to process that for just a second. He knew that he needed to get Emmett Till's uncle out of Mississippi, and yet he continued to stay and lead the fight. The next significant thing is that um, in 1962, Medgar Evers helped James Meredith get into Ole Miss. When James Meredith enrolled in Ole Miss, he became the first black student to be enrolled um, on that at that university. Um, but it was Medgar Evers who was right beside him through that national coverage of that huge event. 
But what you may not know is that seven years before, Medgar Evers had applied himself. He had applied to law school and was rejected. But that moment made Medgar Evers the face of the civil rights movement and action in Mississippi. So people started to see that things were changing and that this guy was leading it. So in the summer of 1963, President Kennedy gave a landmark speech um, about civil rights. He, people really didn't know what Kennedy was gonna say. He wrote the speech himself, but it was the first time that a sitting US president said, civil rights for African-Americans isn't just about legal issues. It's a moral issue for our country. And what people may not know is that four hours after Kennedy's speech, um, Medgar Evers was assassinated. So why is that significant? Kennedy delivered hope to the nation. Kennedy delivered hope to oppressed people and particularly oppressed black people in um, all over, all I mean, literally all over the country. And four, less than four hours later, in order to crush that hope, they took out Medgar Evers. Of course, that was not the end, end result. After Medgar Evers' death, um, people started to say, after Medgar, no more fear. After Medgar, no more fear. And what that means to me is he was so courageous by putting his life on the line, by taking the threats to his family, that people started to say, you know, we have to do something more. It was a huge moment in Fannie Lou Hamer's life and just a huge moment for Mississippi in general that they took out this leader. But I feel like we talk about him still today because he was courageous enough to lead the way. We needed someone in this state to not be afraid to lay the path for the Fannie Lou Hamers, for SNCC, for other people. And that person was our civil rights champion, Medgar Evers. Thanks so much, Sharon. Um, it's good to have friends like Sharon who are so passionate about this history and know it so well. Uh, and I hope you are um, as excited as I am to continue to learn more about what she's introduced us to. Um, all right, we're going to get uh, jump jump in right right into it tonight, and I want to start off by kind of acknowledging um, again, and I've kind of already halfway done this in the last couple of weeks, but acknowledging again the inherent risks uh, with this series that we're doing in February um, during Black History Month. Um, I, I feel like there's a couple of risks that I want to constantly be addressing. <laughs> Um, because I think it's important to clarify what we're doing and why we're doing it. I think the first risk is just the obvious appearance, which I've already mentioned, uh, the obvious problem um, uh, with it appearing as though I'm presenting myself as like the spokesperson um, for something I'm not entitled to or <laughs> able to be a spokesperson for. And so, again, as I said before, I acknowledge and understand that I am not uh, I am not the voice of black history or black theology. And I do not claim to be. Um, I do claim to be someone who uh, believes and has really honestly tried, particularly the last few years, uh, to listen, uh, to develop friendships uh, across uh, denominational aisles and racial aisles, um, to stop um, or to start fighting that impulse to speak on behalf of people that I don't have any right to speak on behalf of and to begin to listen. And what I have found is in that time of listening 
And when I have been able to really hear, um, it's changed me. It changes the way I look at scripture. It changes the way I understand God. It changes the way I practice uh, my faith and the way I operate in this world. And so it's been deeply meaningful for me. And uh, as I'm committed to this, uh, I want you to be committed to it as well, because it's just meant so much for me. So I acknowledge that that whole problem, though, with me being the uh, face of this conversation for our community. The second one is the one I, that I actually, I'm honestly a little more worried about. Um, and that is just uh, because of our current political climate. Um, I, I know that this can appear to be, uh, and it probably will be interpreted to be by some folks if they so choose, um, to be some kind of weird, extra biblical, what's it doing in church, um, lame attempt to establish some kind of, you know, woke credentials or something um, to try and, you know, show our progressive pedigree or I, I don't know, whatever that that thing is that that people tend to get accused of right now for even having any kind of conversation like this. Um, I, I am certain that some will interpret it this way. You may be feeling that way about it uh, if you're turning tuning in right now and I really can't help that and I get that um, but to uh, to be perfectly clear and honest um, I want you to uh, I'm not hiding any cards here's, here's my cards on this whole situation God's honest truth is that I believe that I specifically and that more generally uh, the white American church on average, certainly some exceptions, but on average needs to pay closer attention to the history of the American, uh, the black American church. Um, I think that we have an opportunity to see something in this current history. It's not, we're not talking about thousands of years ago. We're talking about in our lifetimes or our grandparents' lifetimes, the development of this church, uh, of this community of folks, and the way that they have acted and interacted and responded to some horrific situations. And I think we have this very acute, um, visible way of seeing what happens when a community of people who have historically suffered greatly at the hands of their neighbors um, still take Jesus' teachings seriously, right? When they don't just believe in the person of Jesus or in some religious concept, but they follow what Jesus taught. And that's really what I want to get into a little bit tonight, right? Uh, to be perfectly honest, I was not brought up to think about the black church in that way. Uh, and we're, we're going to get a little confessional here for a moment. I hope this isn't uncomfortable for you, but um, it's not how I was raised to believe about the faith of the black church in general or the practice of the black church even more specifically, right? I, uh, I grew up in a very buttoned-down, uh, white, traditional church that um, sometimes explicitly, but more often in a not-so-explicit way, really honestly looked down our noses uh, at the churches of color around us. It wasn't a matter of questioning the Christianity. It wasn't a matter of thinking they were going to hell or any of those kinds of big, you know, things that we did with other people if they, like, listened to, you know, rock music or smoke cigarettes, but um, there was just this kind of 
I don't even know how to explain it. Paternalistic, weird uh, feeling that we were better, that we had something figured out they didn't, right? We saw ourselves as dignified, as very well thought out with a rich theology that was um, cohesive and that we worked really hard on and that we memorized and knew very well. Uh, we were very studied. We were very ordered. We were very pious. Um, whereas those churches um, got a little wild for our tastes. Um, they didn't emphasize the same things we did. Um, the rumor was that a lot of times they didn't vote the way we voted. Um, there was a lot of uncomfortable emotionality in the services. Uh, and the services were way too long. Probably not a real important thing, but we, I did hear that a lot. Too emotional. They're way too long, all these kinds of things. Um, again, we didn't question that these feelings were genuine or that there wasn't genuine faith there, but it was, it was kind of infantilized or something. It was this idea that it wasn't as mature as what we had. Uh, it was a lesser form of piety than our measured, very kind of fixed, heady theology and practice. Uh, that's embarrassing to admit, but it's true. And we didn't have any that I know of people wearing white hoods or screaming white power or, you know, whatever, any of that kind of stuff. Um, it was a lot more subtle than that. And it was a lot more about how great we were, honestly. Um, now, of course, there's no actual basis in uh, believing this in Scripture, um, the Scripture we claim to take so seriously, but it was still something that we believed and we practiced and held, held close. Um, I mean, the truth is, as I got older and I really began to study the Bible myself and not just kind of the certain texts that we always went to at my church, um, it turned out that the Bible was far more wild and unpredictable and emotive and uh, mysterious and dangerous <laughs> um, than anything I was comfortable with, right? The stories of the Bible were everything our worship services were not allowed to be. Um, but we were undeterred in our, uh, in our understanding of how things worked. And uh, even, you know, the teachings of Jesus, which are inherently very extreme sometimes, um, I don't know, they just somehow got filtered through something else in my experience. I think there's a real temptation and an understandable temptation, and one that I fall to constantly. There's a very real temptation to believe in Jesus without following Jesus, right? To believe in Jesus without believing in and practicing what he taught. Uh, to trust in Jesus in some kind of mysterious, salvific, spiritual, my soul is going to go to heaven one day kind of thing because I believe these certain things while never actually doing the things that he told us to do, right? That's a very easy thing. We're all guilty of it, I think. Um, yeah, we're all guilty of it. And I can't imagine, knowing that about myself, knowing that about uh, my own even tradition, I will say, I can't imagine how strong that temptation must have been for people of color in this country, right? I, mean, I want you to imagine for a moment some of the things that Jesus taught and how that must have landed in their experience, in their world, in their context. Um, I want you to consider having uh, black skin and living um, as property, uh, being owned by someone else, 
who could treat you the same way they treated their livestock, sometimes worse, right? Or uh, having black skin and, and living in the Jim Crow era, where even just the hint that maybe you looked at someone the wrong way or were intending to do something that, that someone else didn't like, um, you could be you could be strung up right then and there, right? Or you could be arrested and sent to prison and, and made to work something off, even though you didn't do anything. And you could be kept from um, property ownership or, or whatever whatever the thing might be, kept from voting, kept from having any kind of autonomy whatsoever. You Maybe you can go and even fight for your own country overseas and then come back and still be a second-class citizen. I want you to imagine that context and then hearing those difficult teachings of Jesus. And I want you to imagine how easy it would be to give into the temptation to believe in Jesus, but not follow Jesus. When you're in that situation, you hear something like this out of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, uh, 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give them your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go also a second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you. Do not refuse anyone uh, who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father is perfect. Those are impossibly tall orders for almost anyone, but impossibly tall orders if you're living as a person terrorized by your enemies, right? terrorized by your neighbor. I think we struggle to implement these principles when, you know, someone's stealing our lunch from the work fridge. You know, that unforgivable sin. We struggle with this kind of idea just in, in the most mundane kind of ways, let alone being bought and sold and separated from your family, let alone being in danger of being lynched at any given moment for looking at someone the wrong way, let alone, again, you know, fighting for your country and then uh, being treated as a second-class citizen when you make it back alive. I mean, Jesus locates God directly with those who are oppressed. But Jesus' teachings could not have been easy to swallow. I've never faced any of those things. I, I've never known what it's like to live in that kind of context. And I am so tempted to believe in Jesus without following Jesus. How much more so would that be a temptation if you were in constant state of being terrorized, right? I heard an interview one time with Professor Cornell West, and I, and I found a quote from his book that reflects what he said in that interview, because I can't remember verbatim what he said in the interview. But the quote is this, the Black Freedom Movement has always been an anti-terrorist movement. Black people in America had a choice between creating a Black Al-Qaeda or a movement like Ida B. Wells. And if you don't know who Ida B. Wells is, that's more of your homework to go and investigate her. Again, the Black Freedom Movement has always been an anti-terrorist movement. Black people in America had a choice between creating Black Al-Qaeda or a movement like Ida B. Wells. 
And it was the first time when I heard him kind of talking about this concept, it was the first time I'd ever considered what a miracle it is that the black church didn't turn towards something that was kind of a, a, just another version of the terror that they had been receiving for so long, right? If you consider the choice, it's a miraculous witness that we should pay close attention to. It's a miraculous witness that the black church chose to not just believe in Jesus, but follow Jesus, even the most difficult of Jesus' teachings. <clears throat> I want you to remember back to 9-11, those of you who were alive and can remember that, um, one of those moments that we all remember, right? I want you to imagine if our president had stood on that rubble uh, after the uh, attacks and uh, taken that megaphone and had quoted those verses from Matthew 5 to us. We would have revolted. The church in America would have revolted. The white church specifically would have revolted, right? Because how, how can you quote back to me the turn the other cheek and love my enemies while you're standing on the rubble of the building they just knocked down with our own planes, right? We don't have time for that. How could we think about not hitting back harder than we would hit? How could we not think about going after them harder than they came after us? How could we not think about that kind of action? How can we not think about war and violence after that kind of injustice, right? We believe in Jesus, but we aren't about to follow Jesus and turn the other cheek. They just knocked down our building and killed 3,000 people, right? And yet, that is exactly what happened in the black churches of America. Generations of people living in a 9-11 on a day-to-day -day basis, right? That kind of terror and that kind of trauma. And yet white churches weren't going up in flames. It's kind of astounding if you think about it. There's a great witness there that we shouldn't ignore. White supremacy was not met with black supremacy, even though you could have made a very strong moral case for black supremacy based on the way we were doing things at the time. White supremacy was not met with black supremacy. White supremacy was met with a Christian vision of the world that the white church had largely ignored, a vision of the world judged not by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character, right? A vision of swords beaten into plowshares, of justice rolling down, a vision of uh, not of higher fences, but of a larger table where all nations gather under God, whose banner is love, right? That is a distinctly Christian witness that one part of the church ignored and the other part of the church bore the weight of. It's a, it's, a, it's a miraculous, beautiful thing. That witness is something that we neglect at our own peril. And that is why we are doing this this February. I'm not trying to get my woke credentials. I'm not trying to show how progressive we are or how liberal we are or any of those things. These are not progressive, liberal, woke ideas. These are Christian ideas. So in case it wasn't abundantly clear already, this is why we're setting aside this time to learn about this. We don't celebrate black history because it's good marketing or establishes our credentials. Neither of those things has any real value, especially not in the body of Christ. We listen to the testimony of black history because it carries with it the good news we claim to believe in, but rarely follow.
We watch it, we learn it, we listen to it because it's telling a better story. We follow it because we follow Jesus. No, actually, we follow it because they follow Jesus, and so should we. So I hope you will you will take to this this study. You will take to um, trying to educate yourself more on this and understand the context under which this community of people chose to follow Jesus. I hope you will open your eyes to it and your ears to it. And I hope you will take it to heart. Because if you're anything like me, it is there you will find, um, you'll find the really good news. The good news that has often been lacking um, from my own faith and church experience. We thank God for this history because it is a testimony to who Christ is to the rest of us. Thank you. Have a great week. Uh, peace be with you. We look forward to seeing you in person.